1: Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. So this episode was supposed to be about John G. Patton. And if you are not familiar with the story of John G. Patton, you are in for an absolute treat. A fantastic missionary, missionary to cannibals. He has an incredible story. And I want to do his story justice because I could have worked really hard this week cranking out an episode, but I wanted to take the time to actually read through his biography, his autobiography. It's very detailed. And I wanted to make sure that we were able to do his story really well on the show. And that just takes more time than I was able to uh, give this week. So next week, we'll return with the story of John G. Patton. It may be one episode, maybe two, maybe three I'm not sure yet. We'll kind of see how it balances out. Because, for example, with Gladys Aylward, I intended it to be a two-parter. Ended up being a three-parter. So who knows what we'll do with John G. Patton. And I guarantee you, you will not complain. <laughs> I think you will enjoy his story immensely. Uh, so I will be back next week with that, with a new episode for you. In the meantime, I am giving you another incredible missionary that we had earlier on in the show. I uh, named Asa Jennings. And if you're not familiar with Asa Jennings, most people aren't. <laughs> his story is not very well known. He is a hero during the Armenian genocide. And I am excited to uh, be able to share uh, his episode again because we've grown so much since uh, this episode was released. It was one of the first episodes we did on the show. So if you're new to the show and haven't listened to it yet, this is your opportunity. This is a good chance. Uh, so I will see you all next week with the first installment of john g Patton. in the meantime enjoy the incredible story of asa jennings you're listening to martyrs and missionaries i'm elise and every episode i'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary the called and the brave in this episode we're going to talk about the often forgotten armenian genocide an american missionary asa jennings As a warning out the gate, this episode will be a bit more graphic than other episodes, so if you have children listening, I recommend skipping ahead to the latter part of the episode. I'll put the exact timestamp you should skip to in the description. In the earliest part of the 20th century, Turkey conducted the systematic extermination or genocide of the Armenian people. They conducted it under the guise of mere enemy warfare during World War I, a tactic their ally Germany would also use in World War II. In fact, throughout the study of this event, there seems to be a lot Germany witnessed and utilized in their own genocide 20 years later. Today, only 30 countries officially recognize the Armenian Genocide. Turkey is an important linchpin and ally in the Middle East, so that plays a part in the reluctance other countries have to recognize this event. America only recognized it on a congressional level in 2019. One thing that all genocides seem to have in common as they occur is that the world turns its back. 20 years later, when Adolf Hitler was figuring out how to commit his own genocide, he said, Who, after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians? The previous inaction of the world to the Armenian genocide set the standard for Adolf Hitler. In future episodes down the road, we'll explore more in detail about the Christians God used to intercede during this terrible moment in history. In this particular episode, we're going to do a cursory overview of the events that led up to everything that happened. So first of all, where is Armenia? Armenia is in Asia, and it's squished between Georgia in the north, Iran to the south, Azerbaijan in the east, and Turkey in the west. It was formerly part of the Soviet Union, and it is also one of the earliest Christian civilizations. It was the first nation to formally identify as Christian. In the 15th century, it was absorbed into the Ottoman Empire, and it was subject to unfair taxes and unequal rights because they were not Muslim. As time went on, they demanded basic civil rights. Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who was the last sultan of the Ottoman Empire, wanted to teach the Armenians a lesson. I will soon settle these Armenians, he told a reporter in 1890. I will give them a box on the ear which will make them relinquish their revolutionary ambitions. Between 1894 and 1896, in response to large-scale protests by Armenians, Turkish military officials, soldiers, and ordinary men sacked Armenian villages and cities and massacred their citizens. Hundreds of thousands of Armenians were murdered. In 1908, the Young Turks came to power. And at first, the Armenians hoped they'd be treated as equals, finally, because the Young Turks promised to be modern and secular. Their idea was to become this streamlined state that echoed some of the cities and nations in Europe. They had this idea that they would distribute all the wealth and create an equitable society. But that came with a catch. Christian Armenians were seen as a threat because they were not Turkish. And above all, even above this secular, modern, streamlined society, They wanted to create an ethnically and culturally Turkish state. In 1914, Turkey enters the war on the side of Germany. The Ottoman Empire declares holy war, or jihad, on all Christians except for their allies. And you can imagine how long that would have lasted had they actually won the war or survived it intact, for that matter. Turkey began to use fear tactics to rile up their base. The Armenians were traitors. They would turn on us if they could. They're wealthy and hold all the power. In reality, yes, some Armenians were wealthy, but many were no better or worse than their Turk counterparts. The young Turks reasoned that if they could, the Armenians would join forces with Russia, their enemy, because they were both Christian nations. So on April 24, 1915, the Armenian Genocide officially began. The government rounded up and executed several hundred Armenian intellectuals. Entire cities of Armenians were forced out of their homes and taken on death marches across the desert. They were forced to march naked, exposed to the brutal sun and the scorching sand. Denied food and water, they were forced to march until they died. If they stopped to rest, they were shot. The government organized killing squads that were made up of the degenerates of society, murderers and convicts, to exact a liquidation, as someone put it, of the Armenian Christian element. They were gleefully sadistic. They would drown people, they would throw them from cliffs, they would burn them alive, and they would crucify young girls. And while I was researching for this episode, I was unlucky enough to stumble across one of those videos showing the crucifixion of these girls. So this is an undeniable, systematic extermination of one-people group. Children were kidnapped and converted to Islam. Muslim families inherited the properties of deported Armenians. Christian missionary Tacey Adkinson kept a diary during the war. I'm going to read two excerpts from it that help provide a sliver of the scope of things these people saw and endured. A boy has arrived in Mezra in a bad state nervously. As I understand it, he was with a crowd of women and children from some village who had joined our prisoners and went out June 23rd. The boy says that in the gorge, the men and women were all shot and the leading men had their heads cut off afterwards. He escaped and came here. His own mother was stripped and robbed and then shot. He says the valley smells so awful that no one can hardly pass by now. Today, large crowds have gone out from the city. We are told that the people who started Tuesday were taken only two hours distant. There, the men were killed, the girls carried away, and the women robbed and left. We do not know what is still coming. Large crowds of women and children are coming in today. I don't know where from, and those who are here are dying as fast as they can and are being thrown out unburied. Vultures that are usually so thick everywhere are all absent now. They are out feasting on dead bodies. At the beginning of the genocide, there were two million Armenians living in the Ottoman Empire. By the end, in 1922, There were just 388,000 people left. During these times when it seems like everything is lost and abandoned and there's no hope, God always keeps a remnant. And there are stories of people who intervene in times like these and are able to save countless lives. And their stories are worth telling. In 1922, in the city of Smyrna, which is now Izmir in Turkey, Turkish troops had recaptured the city, essentially ending this Greco-Turkish war that had been going on ever since the Great War ended. Greek troops had invaded the city three years prior, so this actually just brought everything kind of full circle. The Turks took it back over, and the Greek troops evacuated. And Greeks and Armenians were very nervous as the Turkish army recaptured the city, because during this entire time, they had still been persecuting them and pushing them further and further and further out of the country and closer to the coast. But they thought it'd be okay, because there were 21 Allied warships in the harbor. But what they didn't know is that each of the allied countries present in the harbor and on shore had been given strict orders to remain neutral should any violence break out against the Christians. Turkey was seen as too important of an ally. When Turkish troops first arrived, they set a Greek hotel on fire and set up a machine gun at the entrance, firing at anyone who attempted to escape. And throughout this entire event, there's things the Turkish army is doing that is just beyond words, evil, and I'm not going to tell them all to you because it could just be a bit much, and it's not necessary, but just it's safe to assume that throughout this entire event, they're going around just doing awful things to everybody. Now, four days into the Turkish occupation of Smyrna, a fire breaks out in the Armenian district, and this fire becomes known as the Great Fire of Smyrna. It happened in the late afternoon on September 13th. A teacher at the American Collegiate School for Girls was one of the first people to see the fire. And she said, I saw with my own eyes a Turkish officer enter the house with small tins of petroleum, and in a few minutes the house was in flames. Our teachers and girls saw Turks in regular soldiers' uniforms, and in several cases in officers' uniforms, using long sticks with rags at the ends which were dipped in a can of liquid and carried into houses which were soon burning. Now the entire time this event was happening, Turkey denied setting this fire, but there were many eyewitnesses that said the contrary. And even when it's finished and everything has kind of settled, the Turkish and the Jewish quarters are almost entirely untouched. And the Turkish army said that the Armenians set the fire to blame them for the invasion of Smyrna. And that just doesn't seem entirely true, especially concerning the fact that they had already been setting fire to many other buildings as they were coming through and invading. And they would routinely trap people in churches and buildings and set them on fire. This is something that they did pretty regularly. So it wasn't out of character for them to do something like this. So the fire raged from September 13th to September 22nd, and no one could put it out, partially because it caught fire too quickly, it was very windy, and secondly because they weren't allowed to. They were prevented from doing so by the Turkish army. And so half a million people gathered at the waterfront to escape the fire, and they were on this strip that's about a mile, a mile and a half, two miles long, and you have half a million people who were stranded here for two weeks. A British lieutenant described what he saw from the ship that was waiting there in harbor. We arrived about an hour before dawn, and the scene was indescribable. The entire city was ablaze, and the harbor was light as day. Thousands of homeless refugees were surging back and forth on the blistering quay, panic-stricken to the point of insanity. The heart-rending shrieks of women and children were painful to hear. In a frenzy, they would throw themselves into the water, and some would reach the ship. To attempt to land a boat would have been disastrous. Several boats tried and were immediately stopped by the mad rush of a howling mob. The crowds along the quay beyond the fire were so thick and tried so desperately to close abreast the men-of-war anchorage that the masses in the stifling center could not escape except by sea. Fortunately, there was a sea breeze, and the quay wall never got hot enough to roast these unfortunate people alive. But the heat must have been terrific to have been felt in the ship 200 yards away. To add to the confusion, the packs belonging to these refugees, consisting mostly of carpets and clothing, caught fire, creating a chain of bonfires the length of the street. And during all of this, you have the highest officer of the U.S. Navy. He's playing tennis nearby the city as it burns. We often talk about how Nero played a fiddle while Rome burned. And more than likely, that's just an urban legend. But this guy literally played tennis while a city burned all around him and didn't care. A few days into the fire, any evacuation efforts, what little there were to begin with, stopped. Eighty percent of the city had burned. And the Turks were moving in to begin rounding up the remaining Armenians and Greeks and send them on a death march through the interior. In the midst of all this, up steps a five-foot-tall American man with a pronounced hunchback to save the day. When he was in his early 20s, Asa Jennings was stricken with pott's disease, which is a form of tuberculosis which affects the spine. It left him only five feet tall with a very noticeable hunchback. He was a Christian missionary working with the YMCA in Smyrna as a boy's work secretary. While the city was burning, he was able to get his family safely aboard one of the rescue ships as the Turkish troops moved in to finish their ethnic cleansing of the city, and he stayed behind. He bribed an Italian captain to smuggle refugees out of the safe houses. He also convinced a naval captain to go against his orders and to smuggle out refugees. He used a lie and an empty threat to convince Greek military to intervene and send ships. Now, I'm not really sure how he did this. I find it incredible. But a lot of the accounts that I saw said he used a lie and an empty threat. And I can't imagine what that was. Enough of a lie and enough of an empty threat in order to convince the Greek military to send you upwards of 50 ships. They sent 26 ships at the start. And 360,000 people were evacuated in 11 days. And he heard of more refugees that were stranded. So 26 became 55. But before all that, he had to convince the high command of the Turkish army to stand down in order to allow them to evacuate these refugees. And the man that he asked to give him more time to evacuate these refugees became mere months later the first president of Turkey. So he goes to the most powerful man in the country and asks him for time to rescue these people they have been ethnically cleansing for the last 10 years. And this guy says, yes, you can. That is definitely such a God thing. If you're in the middle of getting rid of your supposed enemy, you've got them right where you want them pinned down, there's no escape, there was no reason for him to let them go, but he did. So he was given seven days to evacuate the city, and in order to get from 26 ships the Greeks had offered to 55 ships, he had to serve as a negotiator for the release of prisoners of war from both Turkey and Greece. Turkey refused to give him time to evacuate the refugees, unless Greece released their prisoners of war. Greece refused to let go their prisoners of war, unless Turkey released their prisoners of war. So he was able to negotiate the release of both prisoners of war, making Turkey and Greece happy, which resulted in more ships and aid given to evacuate more refugees. So there were 300,000 Greeks saved in the first 11 days, plus 25,000 Jews and 25,000 Armenians. And in 10 months, 1,250,000 people were removed to safety. And he stayed long after the initial evacuations to ensure that refugees were taken care of. And he helped with the humanitarian efforts in Greece. He became the highest decorated person in Greek history. He received both its highest civilian honor, the cross of the Order of the Redeemer, and the highest war honor, the Medal of Military Merit. There's also a 1945 film about him produced by MGM called Strange Destiny, and I think you can watch it on YouTube if you'd like to see it. Something I find interesting is that Asa Jennings hadn't been in Smyrna for very long when he intervened. It was as though God had placed him there for that moment in time, so he'd be ready to go when he needed him. A memorial to him in Greece reads, Within the heart of every man rests a lion. And while I wouldn't necessarily say it's true across the board, in the case of Asa Jennings, God placed the heart of a lion within him to get done what needed to be done. Even when terrible things happen, when it seems like God is silent, He is raising up men and women like Asa Jennings to do His will, to save His people. If you found this episode engaging and informative, I encourage you to share it with people you know and even people you don't know. I hope you learned some things you may have never heard about the Armenian Genocide. Perhaps it was even your first time hearing about it at all. In future episodes further down the line, we'll talk about it more in depth through the lenses of other Christians who were there. Thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.